Welcome to Very Honored Frater PT's Esoteric Nerd Podcast, episode 106, in which I interview Kes Fry for the sixth time, June 6th, episode 106, Kes's sixth interview. My audience will recognize the reference to Typhirid, but if you stumbled here accidentally, you might be thinking of the Book of Revelation. Anyway, um, I'm not going to do a segment for this one. Kes Fry. Uh, well, if you haven't heard the previous interviews with him, I'll give you a quick rundown. Okay. Once upon a time, in uh, 1919, there was a man named Dan Cleveland Reeb who um, went to work in Shanghai and spent a lot of time in western China and, uh, you know, there on the border with Tibet at the time. And uh, he collected a lot of artifacts. Some of them he sent to his sister. Uh, but he himself uh, collected some things for himself and then he passed away in uh, 1946. And uh, those things eventually ended up in the hands of my dad. Uh, uh, anyway, they, they, all of these, uh, all of these, you know, some of them actually very ancient, uh, some of them made more recently, all of these uh, Tibetan Buddhist and Chinese Vajrayana, which, believe it or not, actually used to be a thing before the great leap in one direction or the other. Anyway, uh, my dad had them around. At the time, I, from my understanding is he was mostly focused on hermeticism and builders of the Adidam and tarot and, and stuff. This is 1966. Uh, but he had these Tibetan Buddhist statues around. And then one day, through a mutual friend, he met Kes Fry. And Kes Fry came in and saw all these things and said, Oh my God, you've got Vimalamitra over here. You've got Green Tara over there. You've got the, you know. The... And so, so my dad, of course... Uh, was very interested, and, and, and it turned out that Kes had come from a, a background where he was practicing uh, Tibetan Buddhist, but staying at an ashram where everybody else was Hindu, but he had, you know, he, he, he got permission to, you know, uh, practice Tibetan Buddhism there, you know, and yoga in Colorado. And so he, he had a lot of uh, exposure to that sort of thing. I think he had probably met Chagyong Trumpa I think he was around, yeah, he came before 66 to uh, to the U.S. Anyway, so yeah, so uh, they met, they became fast friends. I think they met the Karmapa together. Now, of course, that's not the young man uh, bearing the title today. Well, you know, it is, but it's not the current incarnation. It's the previous incarnation. Um, so they, yeah, they became good friends. Kess dedicated one of his books to my dad. My dad uh, introduced Kess to Hermetic Kabbalah and the Tree of Life. So there was this nice sort of exchange uh, of Tibetan Buddhism and, you know, uh, Hermeticism that ended up being the world in which I was born, that of, you know, my immediate family. So Kess was, yeah, he was a big influence on the, the situation in which I grew up, which then directly informed my uh, my path that uh, eventually led me here. So it's, you know, it just seems very beautiful and poetic to me that uh, that I'm here in uh, in India talking to Kes. And um, 
Oh, yeah. So another thing about Kess was he did an interview with my dad. Uh, he interviewed my dad in 1990 on the subject of affective education and uh, because my dad was an educator. And um, I'll make uh, that available to you if you'd like. That whole interview, I'll put a link in the description of this episode. Uh, but I'll, I'll cut to a few portions of that, a few bits from that during the conversation with Kess. And uh, also you'll get to hear from his guru. I, th that's another fun story. Instead of, uh, instead of uh, you know, a, a segment, I'll just finish what I'm saying and then we'll get to the interview. Um, I, had this, I had all these tapes from my parents. They're both, you know, they both passed away for people who don't know me well uh, when I was very young. I mean, a teenager. And I'm in my 40s now, so it's you know, a while ago now. Um, so they had all these cassette tapes, and one of them was this Swami Jyoti, Swami Amar or something, uh, Jyoti. And, and so I, I converted it from cassette to audio and then forgot about it, never thought about it again. I didn't know what it was or what its significance was. And so today I was talking to Kess, and he mentioned that that was the name of his guru, and I realized that I have... A recording of his guru so I will play portions of that as well during the interview and uh, what else I hope you enjoy this episode I also want to mention that I have a travel series I uh, I don't think I had started that when you when you heard episode 105 um, go go to YouTube if you're into it and uh, just search for Edward Reeb. That's R-E-I-B. I know I pronounce it wrong if you're German, but that's how we pronounce it here. I'm sorry. Um, and by here, I mean Goa. You can pronounce it Reib if you come to Goa. We'll just have to agree to disagree. I know I have some paternal ancestors. Actually, the vast majority of my paternal ancestors probably called it Ribe. But anyway, I've, uh, you know, gone on about that for too long. So, well, yeah, I think I finished. I finished everything. You guys have it all. That's all the information. Oh, yeah. Search for Edward Reeb. And uh, there's a travel series that I recommend you check out. But I recommend you skip the first five, at least at first. Unless you know me well or you're really into, like, gazing at the screen while it shows you things for a long time. If you're into that, start with episode one. If that doesn't sound appealing to you, start with episode six, and I swear it's going to be worth your while. And uh, it tells uh, quite a story. Kess and I make reference to the grand journey that I went on when I left California, but you can uh, experience it right there along with me if you uh, just click on part six in the, in the travel playlist um, on the Edward Reeb YouTube page. And it'll take you automatically to part 7, 8, 9, and 10. I'm working on 11. Also, you can go to YouTube and check out VH Frater BT. So just VH space, F-R-A-T-E-R space BT. You'll find a lot of those old uh, live ritual postings that I did. Those live streams a few years back on Facebook. I'm putting them up on YouTube. There's also... Uh, if you're interested, if you're into it, there's the eight-minute hotel room Tridentine Mass that I, I did here a couple days ago on my retreat. And uh, I recorded it to send to Priel, but I, uh, 
decided to post it publicly. It's sincerely heretical, but orthodox. It's, it's sort of will make anyone uncomfortable. Uh, you know, someone who goes to church will be like, why is he doing the Tridentine Mass on a, on a dresser with, you know, like, while laughing and cracking jokes? And then, uh, her like, the heretics will hear it and be like, why is he chanting, you know, in Tridentine sort of Gregorian styles with such ease, you know, like, I thought he was cool. So <laughs> I like to find that zone where I can push one button that, you know, like, simultaneously pushes all the buttons. All right. Well, this was a, this was a long intro and, uh, I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. All right. So what do you say we get to that interview? Shall we? Okay. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a while. It sure has. <laughs> What's new? Sorry about the noise. Oh. oh, okay. Well, I'm working on a writing project. That's good. That's a new New adventure almost every day. Nice. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the writing project or should we keep it quiet until uh, publishing time? Oh, no, I can, <laughs> I can tell you a little bit about it. Uh, it's uh, something that's been developing spontaneously, you know, as the spirit guides, guides me. So I get a lot of surprises. Mm. Because uh, I, I think I know what I'm going to do, but then I find out I'm going to do something different. <clears throat> That's happened several times. The title of the project is Oneness in Contemplation. And? Centering Prayer and, and Universal Spirituality. Oneness in Contemplation? Yes. Okay. Mm. And then the subtitle is Centering Prayer and universal spirituality. Mm. Now, just uh, just for the people who, you know, I, this is your sixth time on the Esoteric Nerd podcast. Um, oh, for this, yeah. yeah, number six. I think you've been on more than anybody. Um, huh. But for the people who maybe this is their first time hearing your name or hearing uh, they've never heard Thomas Keating, they've never heard contemplative prayer. Can you give us like a couple minute rundown of, of what it is that... Uh, that you're specializing in and, and what you became interested in 1989 and where that led you? Well, uh, yeah, I'll try to do it in two minutes. <laughs> or, you know, five, 10, <laughs> no rush. Lot, it could go a lot longer, but yeah. basically- we'll, we'll just make it the topic uh, for uh, the conversation. <laughs> an equivalent of contemplative prayer in every tradition that has any depth to it. And uh, essentially, it involves being receptive, opening ourselves and consenting to the Spirit's presence and action in us. So it involves letting go 
of the way we usually control our meditation or our prayer. As Thomas Keating, the, my teacher, put it, if you do the prayer, then the prayer does you. <laughs> so when, uh, when a lot of people think of meditation, they think I should sit and close my eyes or open my eyes, sit in perfectly still and no thinking. And then they, they go five minutes or two minutes or 30 seconds and uh, they get frustrated because they can't make their mind go quiet. So they give up meditation. Uh, so, so what's the difference between what you're describing and say something like that? Well, I think what you just described is a normal human experience. Yeah. The fact is we cannot stop our minds from thinking. Mm. Yeah. They're like a perpetual motion machine, the mind is, mm. with your memory and your intellect, imagination, things coming from the unconscious. Uh, we can't stop it. Yeah. But that's part of the genius of the method of centering prayer in consenting to the presence and action of the spirit in us. The spirit in us can quiet all of our faculties mm. and bring us into a state of silence where we're not doing any thinking. Mm. But it's not something that we can bring about as an individual consciousness or ego on our own. Mm. And of course, attempts to do so are foredoomed to end in frustration mm. if that's an expectation yeah. that somebody has when they enter into this kind of meditation. Generally speaking, as Thomas Keating has taught, there's a continuum of different methods and techniques of meditative practice. At one end of the continuum is the extremely concentrative, and at the other end is the extremely receptive. Mm. Active and passive. Yeah, active and passive, and the ones that most of us are familiar with are more in the concentrative variety. Or another way of putting it is to say uh, there's meditation with form and without form. The Greek word for that is cataphatic means with form and apophatic means without form. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and well, in the Hindu tradition, uh, they talk about nama rupa, name and form. And the concentrative practices use those things as tools to bring us to a deeper place. But then the deeper types of practices, like what I had a, a teacher from India, named Swami Amar Jodi, yeah. and he, he taught to some of his students, and I got to be one of them, what he called Sahaja meditation. Hmm. And Sahaja means the natural state. So this, this type of meditation is virtually the same as what centering prayer is. It's non-conceptual and it's a state of just being as you are in the present moment. The present moment has no bottom, no top to it. You know, it's, it's infinite. You can never get to the bottom of it. <laughs> 
My uh, my dad kept a, a tape, a cassette tape. I think you probably gave it to him or maybe he attended one of Jyoti's uh, lectures. Um, but yes. I have, yeah, I have a long recording of him talking about how people get upset uh, that he, he uh, people invite him into his house figuratively. And then he says, oh, I see you have a lot of things hidden under the carpet. And what I do, I raise the carpet up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, to be true to my profession again, <clears throat> I take the broom and begin to sweep. And it creates the vapor and fog of the dust. And the host says, what are you doing? <laughs> Everything was silent, peaceful, empty. You are, uh, <laughs> you are making it all kind of, you know, messy and uh, you are confusing me. And um, so I said, why did you invite me? People yeah. don't want to see it themselves. They don't want to confront it. And so they get upset at him. I don't know what the rest of that context was. I just remember that. <laughs> Well, yeah, what's under the carpet is our obstacles. Mm. So it's essential that we address and take care of that because that's our unfinished business, psycho-spiritual yeah. business we have with ourself. And as long as we try to ignore it, then we remain stuck. Mm. And the obstacles continue to impact us in daily life and to prevent us from going deeper into meditation or prayer, into the presence of the mystery. Hmm. Now, you also have a background in uh, Vajrayana Buddhism, as well as contemplative yes. prayer. I, I, when you were talking about the forms of meditation, I couldn't help but think of the, uh, oh, I forget its name, the staff of Padmasambhava. Uh, there's the, uh, the, the head of, that represents desire, the world of desire. And then there's another head representing the world of form and another head that's the skull representing formlessness so i was thinking that the form of meditation that i described at the beginning of trying maybe that's the desire meditation <laughs> which is sort of a contradiction and then what then you can move up from there into form and then eventually to formlessness yeah well one of the one of the things i think ann davies from the BOTA mm. teaches this on her uh, CDs on the, the Tarot Arcana and the Tree of Life is if you're going to do, uh, she's not using my language, mm. so I'm not quoting her, but I'm just comparing the message in words. Yeah. <laughs> if, if a person wants to do a good concentrative practice, which is what the Vajrayana is, pretty much is various concentrative practices with mantras and yantras and mudras and you know ritual and all that mm. which speaks directly to the deep unconscious and produces transformation just as the in the western tradition the tarot arcana serve a similar function in order to be able to concentrate on something you have to be genuinely interested in it and care about it mm. If your heart's not in it, you're not going to be able to concentrate. Yeah. 
that explains why so uh, our I've desires, read so few books. <laughs> our desires are the things that we can really easily concentrate on because we care about them. Yeah. <laughs> and we're interested in them. We get a reward from it. Maybe we some, think we will. Anyway. Yeah, or maybe some uh, chemical stimulant reward, <laughs> dopamine or something. Yes. <laughs> so if we can switch our desire to our higher aspirations and develop a caring heart towards that goal, mm. and that was something Swami Omar Jodi stressed quite a bit, is you have to care for the goal. Yeah. Some of the things he said that I thought were very good were, if you focus on the light, then the shadow falls behind you. Mm. Mm. And uh, yeah. all methods end in silence. Mm. It was another one of his beautiful aphorisms. Another one was, don't blame the darkness, bring the light. Mm. Yeah. That reminds me of a couple things, actually. Uh, uh, in Golden Dawn, a lot of the this uh, podcast originally started out focusing on Golden Dawn, but then it branched out in a lot of directions. But uh, it reminded me of uh, there's a the Guardian in the West, the West to the place of the sunset, and uh, and so he sits and stares at the East, and then there's the uh, Hierophant of the East who represents Typhirid, and. Uh, and so I always tell people when I'm training them as Hyrus that the Hyrus doesn't fight darkness by turning around and facing West and saying, I'm going to fight you, darkness. He fights darkness mm -hmm. by staring directly at the Hierophant and maintaining that link and maintaining that light in the darkness. That was the one thing. And then the other thing I've forgotten. Oh, yeah. The Lord of the universe who works in silence and whom not but silence can express. <laughs> My friend Fred or Silence would appreciate that one. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, yes, silence is, that's where the deepest practice is. Mm. But, uh, you know, to enter into that and to, to be there, we have to have, according to Swami Omajodi, you cannot meditate well unless you have 80% peace of mind. Mm. 70 is not enough. And, <laughs> and peace of mind, uh, as I see it, it requires living in harmony with our conscience, with cosmic spiritual law, Zan Davies would put it. Mm and the healing of our emotional wounds, which are the stuff that's under the carpet. Yeah, which can take time and processing. Absolutely. Bringing, bringing what's hidden into the light, bringing the unconscious conscious. Well, yeah, part of the beauty of centering prayer is that we already assume that the divine is present within us and has complete access to our unconscious. So when we consent to the action of the divine in us, we're giving the spirit permission to go to work in our unconscious and do the healing and the purification and whatever else needs to be done 
and to bring to our attention those things that we need to become consciously aware of in ourselves that we perhaps have rejected or are fearful of or feel threatened by. Yeah. Like if a person is carrying a lot of anger. Yeah. For example, or if they've had some traumatic experience or some some heartbreaking loss that they never fully grieved and healed from, whatever it is. Yeah. It's everybody has their own story. Mm. We're all unique and that's probably part of what makes the whole thing interesting mm-hmm. for the spirit. Yeah. There's no such thing as one size fits all. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. We're 99, more than 99% the same in our DNA. And yet the the diversity, the multifariousness of humanity. I have a two-part question. Oh, sorry. Karma. Yeah, past life and soul. These are cars, <laughs> basically. That's that what we carry with conscious. Yeah. Is everything we've accumulated, not just in this life, but Mm. everything that's pending that hasn't been resolved yeah or balanced out from the past i've written a book on the that 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 reminds me of i want to send it to you it's 37 pages i'm uh looking into different ways that i want to publish it i think this one i actually want to try to publish in some form rather than just posting on facebook like i usually do (laughs) but uh, but i had i have a two-part question if i can remember it um, yeah, I, I was reminded when you were talking about centering prayer, uh, of the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I, I don't know if you, yeah, I mean, if you have been, of course it's anonymous. Uh, you know, I, I, I have been through my yeah, there is AA a, time. There's actually a centering prayer program that works with AA. A what? There's a centering prayer program that Thomas Keating developed. It works with AA as the oh, good. step. Yeah, I thought they would but be very compatible. That first, yeah, that's the way of relating to your higher power. Yeah. Uh, the first statement, though, is that we realized our lives are unmanageable. Oh, okay. So not everybody who practices contemplative prayer is going to need to include that part or feel comfortable including that part. But so the Thomas uh, Keating says we should study the 12 steps. Yeah. He recommends studying the 12 steps because even if you're not an alcoholic or other addict, they're useful. It applies to you anyway. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's an addict of some kind or has some kind of. We're all addicted to our emotional programs for happiness that don't work. Yeah, exactly. So that was uh, the setup. Um, so I know a lot of people that have gone through AA have trouble with the first step. Um, people who have a Christian background and have a positive relationship with the Christianity of their youth. Well, I have no problem with step one. Um, sometimes people who are, you know, like maybe they have rejected the Christianity of their youth and moved into more of an atheistic uh, position, they have a little more trouble. I know one person chose Mickey Mouse as their higher power. Uh, one person chose a doorknob as their higher power. And, you know, if somebody is getting into Eastern practices or something else, then they can say Shiva is my higher power or Om is my higher power, something like that. What would you, okay, a two-part question. That's the setup. Here's the two-part question. I know you've worked a lot with Catholics. Uh, do you find that there is any, generally speaking, obviously every there's a billion Catholics or more, two billion, I don't know how many. Um, is there something that 
increases the compatibility with centering prayer. That's part one of question one. And part two, is there something that uh, inhibits or uh, obstructs uh, a practicing or traditional Catholic's ability to approach centering prayer? <laughs> well, we say centering prayer is not for everybody. Mm. But yeah, I've seen your face on the cover of Catholic magazine talking about centering prayer. So I know <laughs> there's a connection. There. Yeah. Mm. Well, um, in my book, The Bridge Across Troubled Water, which part of which was to respond to Catholic objections and misunderstandings and misrepresentations of centering prayer. I say that uh, there's three questions the person needs to ask themselves. And if they can answer yes to all three of them, then centering prayer may be appropriate for them. Okay. The most questions are, first of all, do you really sincerely want to have a deeper relationship with Christ or with God or with the spirit. Mm. The second one is, are you in reasonably good mental health? Mm. Yeah. In other words, are you just normally neurotic like most of us? Right, yeah. Or, or do you have some deeper Serious issues, issues yeah. psychiatric issues yeah my first student it turned out had some kind of form of schizophrenia and he started evoking angels and then he was convinced the angels wanted him to sacrifice his son and they had to take his son away from him and it was terrible to watch it was painful to watch i mean i'm sure it was even more painful for him and for his partner but uh but yeah that that was what i was thinking is opening opening up to a higher power and, and letting go of control can be a little uh, iffy if somebody's well, it freaks, hearing voices. It freaks a lot of people out. Yeah, yeah. It a lot of people out. And uh, you see, when you do this practice, it opens you to the energies of the unconscious. Mm. So if you're not prepared to deal with that, then it's, don't do this. Yeah. It's like somebody taking a psychedelic like LSD or something. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to open you up to whatever's inside of you. Yeah. And if you're not ready for that, then God, don't do it. Yeah. Please. And then the third question is, do you feel an attraction to praying in silence without mm. you doing anything mm. other than consenting to God's presence and action? So if somebody can answer yes to all three of those, they want a deeper relationship, they're in reasonably good mental health, and they feel attracted to praying in silence, then try it out and see what you think. Now, what, trial run. what if, let's say I'm, a, I'm, I've never met you before, and and you've just told me this, and then my response is, oh, I have a rough time with those questions because. I don't know if I believe in a higher power, but I, I've studied Carl Jung and I understand the importance of these symbols in my unconscious and then the collective unconscious. Um, 
but when I say God, I think of, you know, the, the, the man who, who used to shout from the pulpit in the place where my grandma dragged me. And when I think of Christ, I think of cheesy movies, you know, uh, from the 70s. Um, but I hear that this method is good and I want it to be good. How, how can I get to that place where I can surrender control when I don't believe that there is anything beyond myself? I'm a Thalamite and I believe there is no God but man. What do I do? Should so I just you, skip contemplative prayer? I'm not saying that this is me. Uh, I'm just saying for my the audience. Choice is up to, <laughs> yeah, the choice is up to you always. Mm. Do you believe you have a spiritual dimension or do you believe human beings are simply intelligent animals with no spiritual component to their makeup at all? Mm. If, if that's the case, then... Let's yeah, say I don't understand the meaning of the word spiritual. When I was young, and this is partially actually coming from me, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing and pretending it's the biggest part. When I was little, I thought I understood the word spiritual. And then so I investigated and found out in all these linguistic roots, it has to do with air, ruach and, and prana and all this. And then the more I investigated, the more I really, I wanted to know, I got a microscope, I got a telescope, I got an encyclopedia, and I wanted to know what this spirit was. And eventually I realized it doesn't fucking exist because every time you try to pin it down, it just moves over there and it's, it's slippery like a fish. And so, so I believe in the collective beauty of nature. I believe that the, that the nature, mother nature on this earth is, a, is an extension of the cosmos and that and that buried deep in the rock of an asteroid is the potential for a green earth and even something like humanity to aspire and invent something like spirituality can i still do contemplative prayer sure if you want to you can try it <laughs> there's no there's nothing uh, that can stop you yeah if you want to give it a try and the theory because it also applies to step one of AA, and a lot of people have trouble with AA because of step one. So I'm hoping we can maybe so get help. Would one you person. recite step recite step one as you understand it? Oh, it's been a few years. Um, I, I I accept that my life has become unmanageable, and I cannot manage it myself, and so I need a, I, I surrender to a higher power to uh, to help me. Something like that. Very very close to that, I think. Well, like you mentioned Jungian psychology a little earlier, mm. a person that might be an atheist or agnostic mm. could be a Jungian. Yeah. In Jungian psychology, there's the idea of the self with a capital S. Mm. Okay, yeah, that gets into, I mean, I, there maybe even is a crossover there, maybe the Catholics might think this is getting into some territory that's a little bit heretical, but in uh, Kabbalah, they talk about Eheye, which is the the uh, the self of God in a sense. I am that I am. The the burning bush said Eheye, Ashir Eheye, and so it's a divine name. And then there's uh, you know me, ego, and so they so they differentiate between the lower self and the higher self. And even the higher self isn't God Himself, but the higher self has direct access to God. So we lower selves. So in, the, in translating this into those terms, then centering prayer would be about opening the lower self up to the higher self. Yes, it would be, well, it's about the, the healing and transformation of the personality. Mm. 
and that work is done by the higher self within us. Mm. And you don't need to call it God. Mm. And a lot of it is simply semantics. Right. The process works if you work with it and if you trust it. But mm. in order to let go, the person has to trust. It works if you work it. <laughs> yeah, if you work it, it'll work you. Yes. Nice. There is something inside of us just as the physical body knows how to heal itself when it's injured if it's given what it needs to work with yeah the, the soul or the psyche is the same way it knows how to heal itself if we create the right conditions that will allow it to do so mm. as long as we continue doing those things that prevent it from doing so not going to be able to yeah so you have to have some belief in something deeper within ourself than our ego yeah our separate self sense because that that's something that is continually changing hmm. and uh, basically it's it's kind of pathological if it tries to become its own god yeah it's tricky um, yeah, I mean, I know another, another possible devil's advocate kind of point of view is to think, well, ego is the Greek word for I, and in a sense, ehie is the Hebrew word for I. So we've taken one language, one culture's word for self and made it bad, and the other culture's word for self and made it holy. And uh, then, then uh, Freud, who has been all but completely rejected by any serious psychologist, decided to invent this concept called ego. And then in spiritual and new age communities, we use it as if it were part of the English language. Um, <laughs> so what do we mean if somebody says, you know, what I am, I am my higher self. What are you talking about ego or they say i have no ego i've killed my ego what you see before you is is not an ego it's my higher self i guess they wouldn't really be interested in centering prayer with me <laughs> well you know i would say people are capable of a lot of self-delusion yeah yeah it's true and that's a very tricky thing uh, as far as what we refer to as ego goes I would like first to talk about ego consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's something we can all relate to because in ego, ego consciousness is what allows us to distinguish one thing from another. Oh, right. In uh, the five uh, the koshas, the, uh, the intellect and the, uh, the ability to distinguish. If we didn't have <laughs> ego consciousness, we, we would, just to be experiencing everything as like a baby a kind of a monistic oneness with no features yeah we could survive in these bodies yeah so ego consciousness allows us to survive make the distinctions we need to make in order to survive and relate to the the created reality that we're in as human beings mm. now within that ego consciousness if we develop a sense of identity as a center of 
I within the ego consciousness as our identity, as who and what we think we are, that becomes an ego mm. personality. Right. Or an ego identity. Mm. And if we absolutize it, then it becomes a major stumbling block to spiritual growth and basically right. a major delusion. Yeah. Because then we try to satisfy it. Mm. It's the it's that that has the desires. Yeah. And we desire itself is not a good or a bad thing. It depends on what it is we want. And that's the fundamental question we always need to ask ourselves. What do I really want? Yeah. What's really important to me? Mm. That reminded me of my dad's quote from Transformations. Survival is the yoke of ego, which is burned off. Aliveness is the delight of being, which breathes in its own element. <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what he's calling aliveness. That's like the sahaja, mm. the natural state. Mm. And yeah. the natural state is a state of spontaneous joy and celebration and well-being that's grounded in the present moment. Right. Where, where survival is based on the fear of, 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 of the end of my existence in the form of a wolf or something. Yeah. It takes us out of the present moment into either the future or the past. Yeah. In here somewhere. And then we lose, we lose that magic Whoa. of the Sahaja state. Yeah. Hmm. It's good to see you, Kes. Well, thank you. <laughs> it's been a so long good time. Good to see you. Yeah, I, I, I remembered. I won't uh, reveal too much, but I remembered you were wearing something uh, one time when we we had in private, and uh, I decided to go ahead and wear this. I've never wear this wore this publicly. This is my Nyingma robe. <laughs> picked up oh. in Bhutan. In Bhutan, I oh. went to, they took me to a Nyingma monastery and they had, they claimed to have the breastplate of Padmasambhava inside of cloth and allowed me to touch it. And it was such an electric experience. We were in, it was surrounded by the ancient scrolls of, uh, you know, the three vehicles of uh, Buddhism and, um, uh, yeah, it was just such a beautiful thing. And so I, I bought this knot, you know, the knot of love and the lotus of purity. And then immediately I went and got the same robe that the, that the monk was wearing that, that allowed me to touch Padmasam. <laughs> but oh. uh, but I, 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 I just for the audience, I know when a white guy dresses in something from another culture, especially if it's religious, it's generally considered totally uh, inappropriate and cultural appropriation. I'm not trying to sell anything. I, it's just, it's only with great respect that I wear this and, uh, you know, anyway, <laughs> but it was inspired by you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. When well, I saw it, I was like, I've got to get a robe one day when, when I saw it. <laughs> You've been on quite an adventure since you left uh, los angeles yes <laughs> yes it's been life-changing i did even it's been really Are nice you... to for one thing have another story because when i first started traveling people would say 
so what's your story? And my story was kind of like, it was interesting, but it wasn't like good. <laughs> it wasn't something that I liked or was proud of. But now, now my story is, how did you end up in India? And then I can start at the end of my old story is the beginning of my new story. So I just tell one new story. <laughs> it all started when you I planning, sold everything and left the U.S. <laughs> are you planning to have kids? Uh, well, I might have some in-laws listening to this. Uh, so, so I'll <laughs> just say, I'll just say maybe, maybe could, could happen. Well, you could say enchilada, <laughs> as the Muslims yes. do. <laughs> you know, uh, we'll see. Or enchilada, or some people. Yeah. Inshallah. Yeah. There's a little bit of tension. The uh, my my uh, my my in-laws are uh, they lean more toward Congress party. That's like the uh, the Democrats here, as opposed to the uh, the other ones that are in power right now. That I probably shouldn't say because I live here and they can revoke my visa. Yeah. Um, be careful. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I did formally convert to Hinduism and formally renounce uh, the Savior Jesus Christ, and so uh, they're very happy with me. No, no, that was uh, that that was actually a required step at one point. Um, there's ways to go around that. People can find ways around that, but the simplest way to get married in India is to formally convert to Hinduism, and then you can get married by a Brahmin. Government well, respects as it. I understand it. Uh, Jesus is considered one of the avatars of Vishnu. Yeah. And Ramakrishna certainly explored the Christian That's path true. during part of his life. Yes. Yes. The common link between New Age and, uh, and Hindu. <laughs> Ramakrishna. Hmm. I studied the gospel of Ramakrishna when I was living at Swami Amar Jodi's ashram uh, hmm. above Boulder in a place near Gold Hill. Mm. place called Sacred Mountain Ashram. I spent a couple of years there as a hermit. Mm. And that, that book was just a really deep and powerful companion for me, The Gospel mm. of Ramakrishna by him. I, I, only, I haven't read it, but he, he explored a lot of different paths, right? Yes, he did. He tried everything. Mm. He, well, he's, he was demonstrating that you can get to God through any of these doors. Mm. And that's basically what the, all the cataphatic uh, practices and the idea of universal spirituality is about. Mm. All of them they ultimately bring you to the point where you, you transcend language and concept and image and form and you go into the non-conceptual silence and commune with the with the reality there, which we can't really describe or talk about because yeah. it, it transcends all that. It's the ultimate mystery that's it's everywhere and in everything. It's the ultimate consciousness. Each each individual soul or center of consciousness is one of the infinite numbers of centers of consciousness of this divine mystery. Mm. Mm. So it's always close to all of us, all at the same time, secretly living our life with us, within us, mm. experiencing everything that we think, feel, say, and do. Yeah. 
allowing us to to drive the car to make the decisions mm. until we get to the point where we freely choose to turn over our driver's seat to the divine partner we have mm. by whatever name we want to call her or him someone or asked it. someone asked dan Harmon, the producer of rick and morty what's the meaning of life and he said uh we are taste buds on the tongue of god so the meaning mm. of life is to taste ourself <laughs> it's like yeah that's a good answer <laughs> that's beautiful yeah. yeah i don't think i heard that one before yeah i think he came up with it on the fly i'm not sure <laughs> well it was very creative yeah uh yeah to me the meaning of life is is love mm. and love for each of us is whatever we care about the most mm. so for each of us the meaning of life is derived from what we put our preciousness into yeah what we invest with our heart's preciousness and truly care about mm. so the quality of the meaning of life is relative to the quality of what we care about. Yeah. Hmm. Makes sense. I ordered all the books that I don't have yet, including that one that you mentioned uh, that it was addressing the Christian concerns with uh, meditation. I think I have the ones you gave me. You gave me two books, The Will of Divine Love and uh, The Creator of, The Creation of Reality. And, uh, oh yeah, the creation of reality was a much earlier book, mm. long before I ever heard a centering prayer. But that book was transmitted to me from a spiritual teacher, a non-physical spiritual teacher, who's on a very high plane, mm. and he's still he's still working with me. What I'm writing now, a lot of a lot of it is coming from that source. who identified himself as the old soul. Mm. How interesting, like a guide from the inner planes. Absolutely. And then, uh, so I have, of course, your unpublished book, um, which I'm, I'm hanging on to. I've re uh, read through that one. And uh, so, yeah, yesterday I ordered all the ones that I didn't previously have. Are you hearing a lot of noise coming from, be from behind me? No. Oh, good. Occasionally oh, I've heard of dog barks. Oh, this microphone is great. Sorry. I've heard a couple of dog barks, but no, okay. mostly nothing. Okay. I hear some, some birds. Yeah, there's like a rumbling engine or something. Like a like a generator. Where are you right now physically oh. in India? <laughs> I am uh, in Goa. In uh, uh, we, We're living in Candolim, but I am currently in Kalungate. Um, I, I, I'll say this much right now we're in lockdown. So all the hotels are closed. So it would be illegal for me to stay in a place that's technically a hotel. So I won't say the name of the place exactly where I'm staying, but I'm on a little retreat. Um, basically by, by thanks be to God, I, uh, you know, I'm able to take care of things without having to work. So that basically translates into, especially during lockdown, Pew and I, my wife and I, 
being in shared space literally 24 seven, which it turns out after mm -hmm. a few years, even you know if you love each other, like you need some space, you know? And so we discovered that, uh, that it's a good idea every once in a while for one of us or the other to just go take a few days and just be in a place. Uh, right now I'm also sure. smoking. So, so that also helps a lot. Because uh, when I quit smoking, I get grouchy, and so better that I'm up by myself for the first few days. Yeah, you go through withdrawal, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, but it's beautiful and tropical. The beach is right next to me, and uh, you know, it's it's a beautiful place, really beautiful. Well, I've heard a lot of bad things about the pandemic in India on the news. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it's it's a major catastrophe. Yeah, there's a really lot of layers cool. to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little better this week. Um, the the numbers of new cases has dropped a lot, uh, probably because the whole country went back into lockdown. Um, there's a few things. There's a few you know things that affect it, like um, you know the the families of victims, the you know the people who pass away. The family gets two thousand basically to to lock. Um, which is a little more than $2,000. And if they have no family, then that money kind of goes to the hospital. So there have been a few cases of really shitty hospitals in certain areas, you know, um, lying and, uh, you know, maybe even euthanizing um, people who don't have any familial connections and then very quickly burning the bodies and saying it's COVID and then they collect the money. Um, Two thousand dollars in India is a much bigger it's a lot of money thing than yeah. yeah. So, so I mean, I'm not saying that 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 is a that is a factor. It's a small factor, probably. It doesn't mean that that's why the numbers are so high. But it, there, there's more than one thing happening. Um, among them might might be you know in the beginning a little bit of covering up and wanting to save face and say oh what oh no COVID here, um, which a few oh, countries no. seem to be doing that. And so, yeah, it was, it went from, from no cases to all the cases. And uh, it was a bit shocking. Um, here in uh, Goa, I think they're up to about 30%. 30% uh, of the people in Goa have COVID or have had COVID. Um, it's a lot. And uh, I haven't gotten it yet. The, the vaccine that we, is available to us, COVIX, is 81% uh, effective. So I don't know what Biden's talking about with this whole let's help India thing, but we haven't seen any Pfizer or Moderna or any assistance from the US. But anyway, um, so that's, uh, that's available, but uh, I can't get an appointment. It's, um, if you're over 45, you can get an appointment, but everybody mm. from 18 to 45, you sign in every day and you see all the appointments are booked and there's no new appointments. And then you log in again tomorrow. Well, do you have a strong immune system? Yeah, you know, uh, so, so, I mean, that's that putting smoking will help with that. But, uh, you know, um, yeah, your lungs. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the right attacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So smokers are handicapping themselves. Yeah. But if your immunity is strong, according to my health care provider, Dr. Greg, he says, if if your immunity is strong and you don't have underlying conditions. Yeah. You'll be able to handle it. Yeah. Most we, of the people that get really sick yeah. become that way because the, the COVID attacks the weaknesses that they already have. 
right yeah yeah so it should in be the fine. lungs just, uh, in the lungs and the heart or wherever yeah i know i was exposed to it mm. i've been had it? sequestered for over a year mm. in my condo and the only times i've gone out is to get food or go to a medical appointment yeah well, I'm glad you're and I just right treated it as a retreat time, you know. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Pew gets, I started uh, out doing started out doing a lot of reading. I I reread Lama Govinda's autobiography, mm. The Way of the White Clouds, and mm. doing a lot of Vajrayana practice and meditation and centering prayer. And then after after a while, I was I was invited to give a talk on on the theme of oneness for a group called the Alaska Center of Spiritual Living to do it on Zoom. Mm. And so in the process of preparing for that, I got the energy to do the writing project. And so since last November, I've been really focused on it. Nice. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm going to send you my, uh, my book uh, if you, uh, it's, I mean, I don't know if it's a book, if it qualifies or if it's a long short story, but I'll send it to you. Uh, and so uh, you can have a look at that. I, well, I'll just, I won't say anything about it. I'll just let it stand on its own. <laughs> yeah, please do send it. Yeah. I'd like, I'd like to read it. Yeah. Um, if you send it to my GCI email, I can print it. Okay. I, uh, I can attach a PDF. Like a, as a PDF yeah. attachment? Okay, cool. That sounds I good. How's the weather work. up there? It's very nice. We have uh, close to 19 hours of sunlight every day now. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's nice. Now, yeah, it's still you're in light Anchorage, out right? 11... Yeah, I'm in Anchorage. Okay, yeah, yeah. Nice. It's, it's been in the 60s and gets down in the 40s at night. Sometimes it's overcast and drizzle. Sometimes it's just beautiful sunshine. Here by the equator, uh, winter isn't much different from summer, but uh, there is a, there's a monsoon season that we're just getting to the beginning of that I've been looking forward to all year because I've never experienced tropical rain continuously, you know, for weeks on end. <laughs> one thing i've never is that going to hit heavy where you are in the area yeah you're in? yeah when we moved here we were living in delhi before which is like worse than la um you know in some ways but obviously it it's better in other ways la if you want history you go to the uh nuestra senora regina de los angeles and remember when you know in the 1600s when the spanish came in Delhi, <laughs> it's like, you want history, it's like, you want the 2,000-year-old history or the 1,000-year-old history or the 500-year-old uh -huh. history. Like, it, it's a, over there, over there, and over there, <laughs> you know? So in that sense, it's very interesting and beautiful. Like, if you can get past the smog and the shouting and the honking and the dust and everything and the smell, then you can see the the richness of, of, of the humanity and, and the history of it. And, and I, I got really into that. I was like studying the moguls and everything, but, uh, but it was, it was nice to leave, you know, and get, get someplace uh, with uh, good air and, and not as much crowd and you know, all that. I would think so. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Plus they go as such a perfect fit for us. Uh, Cause Pew, Pew's uh, 
been drawn toward the Christian teachings. And, uh, and of course, you know me, I've been, uh, you know, as much in, involved in Christian as Buddhist and, and Hindu. Yes. And Goa is such, some people say New Age started in Goa. Um, huh. Hypnotism started in Goa, that turns out to be a thing. Um, uh, th there's been a lot of rough, you know, Inquisition type history, obviously. That was a terrible period. But, um, but this is, you know, I mean, these days it's most known for the, for the rave parties and, you know, a lot of hippie kids come here and take LSD and party on the beach and all that. But there's these old beautiful churches, these, uh, these old Portuguese style churches and some big cathedrals. There's this one big, big, big cathedral that was struck down by the wrath of God. <laughs> so it's just a shell it's like it's like a it's like a it's like you're seeing a, a ruin from ancient Greece or something but it's only about 500 400 years old uh, and but you can see the design for it and what must have been going on inside and such a rich and interesting history here and, uh, so yeah I've been been getting along with the ghosts pretty well so far <laughs> the ghosts <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of like uh, haunted stories and, and, and books that take place in Goa. And, you know, a lot of people were tortured to death and, and so on. Uh, oh. Even if, if, if the Portuguese had a colony in China or, or the Philippines and someone in one of their colonies was suspected of secretly being Jewish, they would put them in a boat and take them to Goa so they could stand trial and be executed. So, oh. so this was kind of more than Spain and Portugal. It was kind of the heart of the Inquisition in the world, especially in Asia. But because everybody, everybody that would have been killed in Spain and Portugal—not everybody, but most people—got the heck out of there and went somewhere safe. And the coolest, safest place at the time was Goa. And then that turned out to oh. be the least safe place. And so everybody fled Goa. So there's a lot of. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Jewish and, and Muslim and, and secret Jewish and, you know, this kind of thing that fled into Maharashtra and, and Kerala and, 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 you know, hundreds of years ago. So it just kind of adds to the tapestry of the, uh, of the diversity of India, really. <laughs> well, the, yeah, that's got a history. Yeah. Thousands of years old. Oh, yeah. All the way back, what, to the time of the Mahabharata. Mm. Yeah. And before Vita Vyas, the great author of the Vedas, and mm. Vyasa, I guess they called him. Mm. That Indus River Valley, uh, those ruins, I was watching something about them and, and someone said something interesting that it's not only that the place is so old and so sophisticated, it's that it couldn't have been that sophisticated if these things hadn't already been developed way before that. So it was, it was what, we're, what we're actually looking at is the, uh, the end of a civilization that went back, we don't know how far. <laughs> and we, then, then it dried up and that's the part we saw. It's like the end of it. And then everybody went south. Yeah, I remember hearing a few years back that they discovered under the ocean in a complete city Oh yeah, the, the Krishna city, the city he built. There was apparently a man who was a king who was romantic, and then he, and then after a few hundred years, they decided that he should be a god because they loved him so much. And then after a few more hundred years, somebody wrote his backstory and decided he was a little thief who stole butter and ghee, and that he was the incarnation of Vishnu. And thus we have Krishna. 
but I want to go to that city. I want to get a scuba, you know, I, I, I would like to see that just to have been there, yeah. you know, so much noise. I don't know what's happening here. Sorry. People are running generators and stuff. <laughs> hmm. I don't hear them. Oh, that's so good. So I, I hope that it doesn't come through well. in the final recording. So what else? I, uh, I think we covered all the basic stuff, you know, uh, Vajrayana and contemplative prayer. Obviously, there's a lot more we could talk about. Let's talk about my dad. <laughs> I, uh, oh, yeah. I always explain to people that, uh, that you interviewed my dad in 1990. And that as a result of that, I have a 90 minute recording of my dad, which is a huge golden thing to have for someone who's lost their, you know, dad and if they care about their dad. Absolutely. And uh, so I figured it's not not that I owe you anything, but if, I think it's poetic that I've interviewed you so many times on <laughs> as a Darren Nerd. Yeah. This is Kes again. It is Thursday, July 26th. 1990. I'm up in Sierra Madre Canyon, Southern California, at the home of my friend John Dan Reeb. And what would you say, in a few words, John, is, is the purpose of public education in America today? Well, the de facto purpose, unfortunately, has become lost because we have gotten involved in a lot of finite aims and uh, possibly a misinterpretation of an 18th century term in the Declaration of Independence where it said that we were entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're not supposed to find happiness, we're supposed to pursue it is the contemporary term. The pursuit of happiness in 18th century English meant that you were supposed to live life in the most beneficent and serene way possible. And the meaning of the language has changed. So that we put a neurotic spin on the meaning of it. And that's part of the problem. Okay, because of this, because of the proliferation of people, because of commercial advertising, we have lost our sense of aim or direction, which I take to mean the sense of purpose. Uh, I would say <clears throat> that my sense of purpose as an educator is to allow students to discover how to relate to others with mutual benefit. And in, in line with the, ninth, with the 18th century definition of the pursuit of happiness rather than the 20, 20th century definition. Maybe I'll play a little clip of that interview at some point in the, in the episode. Well, yeah, it was. It gives a good, a good feeling for the your dad's presence. Yeah, yeah. And just, he was such a unique individual. Mm. Certainly one of a kind. <laughs> yeah, definitely. He definitely put me on the path. You know, I uh, I feel like for both my parents, in a way, maybe it's the psychedelics or the meditation or something. But I feel like, on one level. I, I, I'm, my life is an extension of theirs. Obviously, I have a soul that incarnates and, you know, so it's not, it's a partial truth on one level. So in, in that yeah. way, I see, uh, you know, my dad, when he was 19, or whenever it was, 
uh, he went to uh, India on the Queen Mary and he stayed in Bombay, now Mumbai, and he witnessed abject poverty and death. And, uh, and it was so shocking to him that it eventually led to his being Buddhist, according to him, at least that's what he told me. Mm. And so, so I, th I think it's very, again, poetic to come to India and uh, it's been developed obviously a lot since my dad was here in the early sixties. And of course it depends on kind of where you go. You can still go to some areas where you can be horrified by the object poverty. Uh, but Goa isn't one of those places. Now, I it's remember sort, your sort dad. of Southern California of India. <laughs> <laughs> I remember your dad telling me when he went to India, I don't know if he went with his mom or who yeah. he went with, but he was getting off the boat mm. and not far from where he got off the boat, there was like this big pile of dead bodies of corpses mm. with vultures. And he saw this one vulture pulling the intestines out of a corpse. Mm. I, I can expound upon that. Um, he got and, off the boat and uh, they told him not to give money to anybody. And uh, then they were the people were crowding, you know, change money, money, money. And so he had some coins in his pocket and he threw it and everybody dove into a big pile. <laughs> and then uh, he and his mom went to a taxi and there was a man saying tour of city, you know, this many, this much money, this many rupees. And uh, then uh, a guard came up. This was post colonialization, but according to my dad's story, it was a British guard. Uh, came up and, and is this man bothering you? Uh, yes, you know, his mom said, we're just trying to get in the car. And so the, the guard picked up the man and threw him against a wall and he just Ooh. fell down on the ground. And so then the, later that night, my dad couldn't sleep. So his mom was asleep and he was wandering around the hotel and it was dark and he saw vultures and he looked down from the edge, edge of a cliff and he saw a female corpse with vultures pulling out the entrance. <laughs> so it sounded yeah. like the, those stories all got combined. <laughs> well, he told me, he told me that there was a, a vulture was, was eyeing him. Looking yeah, at there him. was one looking at him and one eating. Telepathically, he felt like the vulture was really thinking about how nice it would be to eat. Yeah, yeah. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> really a creepy feeling, I guess. <laughs> so I, uh, so yeah, so I mean, you know, that led to my Buddhist Buddhist path as well, because, you know, I mean, I grew up, he, he taught me about it and everything, and eventually it led me here. And partly, I mean, for a number of years, I always thought of myself as being specifically Tibetan Buddhist. And then one day, you know, after doing enough research, I came to realize that Tibetan Buddhism, I mean, all the, that's a big, there's a lot of forms of Tibetan Buddhism, but ultimately, if you go back to the Nyingma, it's no more or less than seventh century popular Indian culture exported to Tibet and then mingled with the native uh, culture. And so That's they right, just, right. everything led me back to India. <laughs> everything kept leading back to India. Well, if it hadn't been for the transplanting of Vajrayana Buddhism from India We would have lost it. Yeah, it would have been lost because when they Muslims came in, I think it was around 1100 or something mm, like that. Yeah. They, all the Buddhists were centrally located in two large cities. Mm. 
and they just went in there converting with a sword and yeah. exterminated the whole thing and destroyed all their scriptures and Marpa Milarepa's guru made a trip there and he he got uh, a lot of the sacred scriptures and took them back to Tibet. Mm. So he and of course hundreds of years earlier Padmasamhava mm. were responsible for that tradition staying alive. Going to Tibet and staying there. Mm. Another interesting one, uh, Vimala Mitra. I mean, not not a whole lot is known about him, but what I can kind of piece together is he came with Padmasambhava to Tibet, and then he continued on into China, and then met Kukai um, from uh, from Japan, and then Kukai brought everything back and established Shingon in uh, Mount Koyasan, which is basically this. It's Vajrayana Buddhism, but without the emphasis on Tibet or the uh, the bone deities, you know, that became guardians. Um, but, yes. and it has a very different emphasis and they're, they're like magical things like sit and face south at, at high noon, visualize a red triangle and light up this chakra and chant this way. These kinds of things that like, uh, you know, I know Dogen from the Zen school would say was, was not Buddhism at all, but, um, uh, but it's so interesting. And the development of the Japanese language actually happened right around all these events. It wasn't uh, Kukai, but his teacher. Oh, Bodhi something. It wasn't Bodhidharma. It wasn't any of the usual Bodhis. It was a different guy in um, Nauru. Uh, he, he, there was a, he was an Indian scholar. And then based on Sanskrit, they put together the 47 letters of the, uh, the old Japanese alphabet. And... Uh, yeah, really interesting stuff. So, uh, and then Kukai was was young. He grew up around all that. And then he went back to China and then found Vajrayana and then brought it back and then established his own school in Mount Koya. And uh, so, yeah, it's the similarities and differences. They have a, they have a Dorja, but it looks a little different. And, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of little things like that. It's, it's, so, yeah, the, the two bastion, the two two places where Vajrayana still thrive in, uh, well, and then to the Tibetans had to come back into India and uh, the, the, the Tibetan Buddhism that's left in Tibet is slowly being, um, you know, changed by the CCP. But, uh, but, but the sort of the old threads of Tibetan Buddhism still live here in India. Well, it was very nice that the India accommodated those refugees yeah allowed them to come in including yeah. the dalai lama yeah everybody i've met loves the tibetans when i was in nepal there was a little bit of resentment for some reason i mean they just i, I got the sense of people were like ah the tibetans they don't pay any taxes they get to live here for free you know and uh, oh. but in india everybody seems to love the tibetans there's no bad bad vibes i don't know why that is <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> there's a Tibetan part of town here, but we haven't really been able to explore it because of the lockdown. It's like a marketplace. When everything's back to normal, we'll explore that. <laughs> yeah, whenever that happens. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, if you go anywhere, you have to wear a mask, I suppose. Yeah. A breathing mask. 
yeah, in some areas, the cops actually beat people with bamboo sticks if they don't wear masks or if they if they don't have a good reason why they came Ooh. out. Yeah. The cops will say, what are you doing? Where are you going? They'll say, oh, I was just going for a walk. Bam, bam. <laughs> it's like, don't go for a walk. <laughs> you know? But if they say, I'm going to get food, they say, okay, hurry up. <laughs> you know? oh. Yeah, it's rough. Boy, it sounds like they're pretty harsh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A little bit more than U.S. and a little bit less than China. <laughs> yeah, in America, they're like, would you please not give each other the disease? We ask politely. <laughs> in India, they, uh, they require it. And in China, they, they weld your door shut. <laughs> so it's, oh. Yeah. At least in one case. I, I ran out of uh, subject matter. But, uh, but I don't want to end the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what, do you, uh, what do you think would be good for people to hear? Well, I don't know exactly who's listening to or who listens to your podcast. So it's hard to Well, there's a new crop. To say. There's, uh, there's basically, they're, they're uh, mostly male. Um, Freemason, young Freemason interested in uh, Hermetic Kabbalah, but also who, who studies Eastern paths. I think that's generally the demographic. Obviously, there's people outside of that. There's, there's also female listeners, but I think it's more than 70% male. Uh, but it, not that that oh. matters, but just, just as, as human beings in the world today, going through this pandemic, going through you know, all the political weirdness, all the, the bubble, the culture divide between people happening in US and in other countries, these extreme- Oh yeah, the polarization. People, people polarization, everybody hates the other side and uh, the faceless other, you know. Well, you know, that's something that I've been trying to, in a spiritual way, address in my writing. Mine too, actually, the book I'm gonna send you is about that you know the problem we have with the information wars mm, yeah and the disinformation versus the misinformation and yeah. i guess you know the distinction between those yeah two things. misinformation's accidental disinformation is intentional i think yeah one of disinformation the person spreading Lies. it knows they're lying yeah and the misinformation rumors is somebody who has believed the lie and continues spreading it but right realize that it's not true yeah 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 that makes sense so they're not so culpable as the ones that are deliberately trying to manipulate people's consciousness and behavior yeah well in um in reflecting on this i i was reminded of the great uh, ancient greek philosopher socrates mm who pretty much everybody's heard of. Yeah, Socrates. <laughs> he was definitely an old soul. Yeah. And, um, you know, the Oracle at Delphi was asked, who is the wisest person in our world? And the answer came back that it's Socrates. Mm. And when Socrates heard that, 
he was kind of dumbfounded because he did not consider himself to be the wisest person. Mm. The thing that he had discovered was that he really didn't know anything. Mm. And he discovered that for human beings, none of us really know anything, at least on the intellectual level. Yeah. Because in order to operate the intellect, it's necessary that we make assumptions, mm. which we cannot prove or disprove. Mm. Yeah. And with the information wars, there's a mm. lot of assumptions being made. Yeah. And people that are buying into the bullshit, whatever side it's coming from, they're convinced that they really know. And they've become expert you know in dissecting common sense and consensus reality from the, from the same with the same tools they should be using to dissect their own positions you know like talking about the the basic assumptions that you have to accept in order to believe that the government isn't trying to do some horrible thing or that the media isn't part of some 1984 style you know conspiracy it's like well these are big assumptions you're making but you've swallowed those and instead you're going to dissect my assumptions you know what I mean? It's like ah, frustrating. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the part of the point is I've gotten to it is that you cannot know for sure whether the assumption is true or not true. Mm. So there's this great uncertainty principle. Yeah. They take it once, like there was a flat earther guy that came on episode uh, back in the 20s and he he was saying, you know, can you tell me with absolute certainty that you know for a fact 100% beyond the shadow of a doubt that the world is not flat? And I had to admit, well, no, you know, I mean, given, yeah, it's possible that it's a huge conspiracy because I mean, you know, yeah, it is. And then I said, well, can you admit that it's also possible that the world is round? And he said, no. I was like, okay, well, that's where we, oh. that's where we lose our, you know, like if you're expecting me to have such an open, you know, sense of like the Descartes level of certainty. Uh, you know, I only know that I am because I'm thinking everything else could be a dream. Um, you know, you, you, gotta, you gotta be there with me. You can't say, you know, oh, well, you're uncertain, therefore I'm right about QAnon. Like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, so uh, part of what I've written is called The Wisdom of Uncertainty. Mm -hmm. and uh, you know a lot of people are very attached to their opinions or their sense of what they think is certain mm. they even self-identify like you were saying the ego yes the false self yeah they self-identify with it but so if you if you question it it means you're to them, you're questioning their authenticity. Yeah, and they get the amygdala reaction and everything. So there, there's an awful lot of emotional attachment. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the polarized sides are not able to have civil conversations or respect each other. They demonize each other instead. Yeah, yeah. 
they only ever see each other at Thanksgiving sitting around the table. Something that, that uh, Swami Jodi also said that I just thought of was, you become what you oppose. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. So with the uncertainty principle or the wisdom of uncertainty, it's a way of avoiding falling into all those traps. Yeah. But you have to be willing to admit that life is an act of faith. Mm. It could be positive or negative faith. Mm. Even if a person is a doubter. That's faith related. <laughs> that's, that's on the, on the faith, faith scale. <laughs> yeah. If they believe that the doubt is correct, for 100% sure. Yeah, faith in the doubt. It's an act of faith, just as much as what I say a fundamentalist Christian believes. Right. It's like the, the atheist who says there definitely is no God is making a leap of faith. Absolutely. Mm. We all are. Yeah. And if we all could admit that, then we could overcome the problem of the polarization. Yeah. And just realize everybody has the right to choose their own point of view, their own opinion. But we're all equal in this. We're all equally unable to know anything for certain on the intellectual level. Yeah. When you mm. experience something intuitively and you feel know it, it convinces the person, the subject who experiences it and they know as far as they're concerned. Right. But <laughs> you can't get other people to know the same thing who haven't had that experience. Yeah, yeah. You can tell them about it and they can accept it or reject it or be agnostic about it. You can make a movie with a moving soundtrack that tries to get people to come around to the conclusion. <laughs> yeah. Propaganda, I think they call that. <laughs> yeah, that's it's an ancient game. Yeah. Misinformation, starting rumors, whether it's done socially, you know, in high school or international, and where it starts wars and causes all kinds of trouble. Yeah. My friend Kapil, he's, that's his voice back there. Uh, he always says, you know, the world is so beautiful, but the fucking humans. <laughs> He'll be driving around and say, ah, humans. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> but it's, it's very true. They can be very frustrating. Without the humans, you know, yeah, it can be harsh. Obviously, there's harsh weather and there's, uh, you know, food scarcity at times and things like that. Nature, Mother Nature can be pretty brutal but but the humans take it to a whole other level of complexity and uh you know tying of knots <laughs> well we've tied ourselves up in a lot of knots yeah <laughs> I, I i really do believe that wisdom of uncertainty is a way of unraveling all those knots yeah because it relativizes everything instead of absolutizing stuff that doesn't deserve to be absolutized Mm. But does it absolutize relativity? <laughs> oh, well, that's a good question. <laughs> there is an absolute, but it's a mystery. Mm. Yeah. Everything to me, what I'm saying in my writing is everything in creative, created reality is based on duality and it's relative. 
Mm. And it's always changing. So you can't absolutize any of it because it's not really stable. Yeah. It's energy in motion, mm. which is what time is, is measuring that movement. Mm. I saw someone posting on liminal spaces, which is a whole other subject, um, saying that even a rock is a process and a, uh, a transition from one state to another. Absolutely. Just like, you know, the sun, our sun seems eternal, but it, yeah. according to science, yeah, it's not going to burn forever. <laughs> yeah. And it was always everybody, the ancient people's measure of uh, eternity, the timeless. It was like above. an absolute. Yeah. Well, it would seem like an absolute. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. To the human senses. Mm. But the human senses deceive us. Mm. Our Zalama Govinda once put it, everything is, in creation is a factual illusion. Mm. <laughs> hey, I, while I've got you here, um, I, you might remember I wrote you actually, I think two years ago when I was in the middle of my journey through India, through Nepal, through Bhutan, and I was starting to you know, I mean, it seems like when, when anything from a distance, from a distance, the world looks blue and green. And from a distance, Tibetan Buddhism just looks golden and yellow and beautiful. And there's prayer flags and incense and beautiful chanting. But if you, mm -hmm. if you start to dig into it, you know, obviously a lot of it is very beautiful and some of it is not. And, uh, and especially the, there's the branch of it that was, that hails um, Chagyong Trungpa as their founder. Uh, and it's based, I think, in US or somewhere in, in, oh, in the Shambhala organization. Yeah, they're very popular and I love their books, but man, they've got some controversy right now. And it's pretty awful. I don't know if you've been keeping up on all that. Um, I haven't been, but my sister told me a little ago. bit about it. Yeah. Chagyong Trungpa's son. Uh, I think a lot of people are losing faith. A lot of people that were sexual indiscretions. That seems to have been the downfall of so many uh, gurus from India and and Tibet and whatever. Yeah, they can't handle American women. <laughs> uh, Ram Das once put it mm. because there's two out there with their sexuality. <laughs> it's too shocking. But I don't know if that's true or not one level of it. But that's the reason for it is what I mean. Mm. But uh, yeah, it has been the downfall of so many. And also other people, you know, like in politics and people in positions of power and authority yeah. who are living off of their ego's sanity succumb to all these things. Ramakrishna said it's women and gold. Those are the two main downfalls of of humans mm. or hmm. men anyway yeah oh man <laughs> speaking of california it makes me think of the gold rush the old, those old towns where it's everybody trying to get gold and then there's the the hotel <laughs> hmm. what would you say to someone who um maybe would they were had they had a pure practice and they just were seeing nothing but the good and nothing but the holy 
And then they started seeing all these horrible articles about the, the head of their organization and then even the founder of the organization being so, so inappropriate. And um, so they, then now they're thinking, you know what, I, I thought that this spirituality was good, but I realize now it's bullshit and I'm just going to forget it. What would you say? Well, I would, I would say don't, don't throw the whole thing away. Mm. Uh, something that I know Chogun Trumpa once said to one of his followers who was becoming disillusioned because of some of the outrageous behavior. Mm. Uh, and Trumpa actually read the guy's mind and saw what was going on. And he said, you have to separate the teacher from the man with me. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing I would say is that just about everything has a light side and a dark side. Mm. Everyone has a light side and a dark side. Organizations do, so forth. So if you if you create unrealistic, idealized expectations, and then you start worshiping it, of course you get your heart broken when you discover that the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. But if you realize these leaders or exalted teachers are still human beings mm. with a light side and a dark side. And it's unrealistic to expect them to be superhuman. Yeah. And there may be some highly evolved adepts who have overcome human nature, but those are awful few and far between. Mm. And referencing the, the tree of life, which I think is the best map there is of the spiritual journey and the evolution of consciousness. And you would have to go in and explain more of this to your mm -hmm. oh, followers uh, or yeah. people. A lot of them, but that's a good uh, map to use because that's the one they're familiar with. Within each of the 10 Sephiroth, there's a miniature tree of life, mm. complete. And so once we begin the spiritual journey, we start in Malkuth kingdom at the bottom of the tree. So say somebody who's very diligent, works their way up through that tree and when they get to uh, Tipperith, beauty, what is, equates to the Christ principle, that's when they start becoming somewhat spiritualized. They become concerned for social, political, economic justice, religious, educational, social freedom, the care of the earth, you know, uh, and all these sort of things that relate mm. to the realm of Malkuth which is the province of science, that they keep evolving up and say they become a spiritual teacher and they get to the level of Kether, the crown. Mm. There's a temptation there where they might think that they've completed the journey mm. and that they're a perfected being. Yeah. And they'd have the charisma and they have all these things and they gather followers, but then they start succumbing to some of their lower selves 
temptations in the desire nature, and they commit sexual indiscretions, or they become greedy for power or money or whatever, and their dirty underwear shows up, and then their followers become disillusioned. Yeah. It's almost so like a natural process. Hmm. Yeah, this is to be expected at this level, but the person isn't aware of the map. Yeah. They don't see where they are on the tree. They think they're at they think they're at the big kether at the top of the tree. Right. But, they're still in Malkuth. They're just a little kether yeah. down in Malkuth. <laughs> they have to repeat the process, you know, and go into Yesid. Hmm. Yeah. Climb the tree again. Hmm. The same temptation appears. Then they have to go into Hod. Mm. Then they have to go into Netzit. So many teachers who aren't aware of this map, who have been become accomplished and who have good things to teach and good things to say, but they still have all the flaws of the human personality and desire nature. Yeah. Including the sex drive, power drive, and so forth. Mm. And so that's what happens. I One thing I love is uh, if you have a chance, episode, uh, I think it's episode 77 of Esoteric Nerd, I recited volume eight of Suryangama Sutra, it would, in which uh, basically it talks about how as you're on the path and you, you know, deeply meditate that you'll achieve these great things and you'll have these wonderful visions. And that does not mean you're a sage yet. That accept the experience, experience the experience, and it will pass. It's temporary. And they describe so many of them. There's one where you feel so sad that you think if you step on an ant, if it breaks your heart like as if your own child has just died. And then it says that's a good state hang out with it. You're not a sage now. And then it moves on to the next one. There's a next, another one where you'll be so happy. You'll be filled with happiness. That's a good state. Hang out with it. You're not a sage yet. <laughs> and then, then it goes on yeah. from there to talk about if you think you're a sage, you'll be susceptible to the demon's influence. Then it talks about all these types of students with their secret desires and that the demon sees the desire and then it takes over the body of one of these idiots who thinks they're a sage and then comes as a false guru. <laughs> and, then, and then it outlines the whole thing and the like 10 different ways that it can go. It's such a beautiful sutra. It's the, the, the straight and narrow pathway to enlightenment has so many distractions and so many different temptations, not just sexual, but like, uh, you know, every different thing. Like you want the answer to be, hey, include this. I want enlightenment, but with a little bit of this. And so then that taints the, the path entirely. That Surangarma Sutra was one of Lama Govinda's favorite sutras. Mm, mm. He highly recommended people study that. Mm. The guy who recommended it to me probably got the recommendation from Lama Govinda. He could have, who knows? Yeah. He's anonymous. But, he called himself Bob Pliskin, which is a character from Escape from New York. Uh, but I never, never knew his real name, but he, he made me read this because I was on the, uh, on the internet telling everybody they need to open up their third eyes right now. And he was saying, no, <laughs> like not everybody needs to open their third eye right now. Read this. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, yeah, the, 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 the temptation of becoming ego inflated 
with spiritual pride and self-delusion is there and people who succumb to it. And it's normal for spiritual teachers that as they're going through the different grades to go through that process to yeah. make those mistakes <clears throat> and incur the karma that goes with it and have to rectify it in future lives and so forth. Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember something I was just going to say. Their egos get inflated. Oh, they they develop too high an opinion of themselves. Yeah. Mm. And that's kind of the subtle hook. Yeah. But then they'll get around it by saying, no, it's not about me, ego. It's about Christ in me. And now I'm such a beacon of Christ now that when I see myself, I only see Christ. And so I love myself. Like <laughs> something like that. Mm. Uh, some roundabout, weird, you know, new age way of saying. Well, some very highly evolved beings succumb to this mm. Mm. because they, they don't realize that there's still seeds to be cooked. Well, they've got a long ways to go. You know, Lord and of the Rings many, a little? Sorry, I, I'm interrupting. Go on. I was going to say there are many graced experiences that we receive that are given to show us what lies ahead and to encourage us in our journey. Hmm. But if we succumb to the delusion that now I've arrived and I'm perfect, then the, you know, the ego is completely taken over. Yeah. And the person does not know it. And they really perfect the art of practicing what Swami Omar Jodi called the egoless ego. Mm. Mm. So they can convince people that they've overcome the ego, but they're yeah. still <laughs> they're still stuck. And that can happen to any of us. The only way to protect yourself against it is humility. Mm. Patience and humility. We need to practice those and never stop practicing them. Yeah. Patience and humility. Those, they may seem boring to people who are looking for sensation. Right. Sensational experiences, sort of the, but that's a mature, <laughs> a mature spirituality is grounded in very, very strong, powerful deep humility when i had my first encounter in a dream with the old soul that's been guiding me one of the things i picked up was that here is a being who is infinitely humble mm. and was radiating love to the point i was looking at him across the pond and he was communicating telepathically with me but every time he moved, when he was approaching, this love came off of him that put me into tears and bliss. Mm. Mm. But the message I got, looking him in the eye and the face was, this is infinite mm. humility and infinite compassion and infinite love. Mm. That's beautiful. Mm. That's mature spirituality. Yeah where you don't have to keep having all these peak experiences. Mm. You're at a point where you can abide in the consciousness. <clears throat> I'm not there yet myself by any means, mm. but mm. I know this is true, at least as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I assume it's true. 
you're content to abide in peace, humility, and patience within yourself, knowing you're connected to the divine presence and you're trying to serve the divine plan. Mm. <clears throat> Not seeking any acclaim for yourself or need, having a need for that. Yeah. But realizing that everyone is God. We're all part of the same oneness. Mm. So whatever we do to anyone else, we're doing to ourselves on the deepest level. Yeah. And you know, Jesus certainly affirmed that when he said, whatever you do to the least, you do to me. And honest, honest introspection is important because it's too easy for somebody to hear the instructions, act humble. And people will think that you're spiritual, you know, basically, or, or to interpret it that way. And, uh, but, but, you know, there, there was a, a book, uh, a traditional Jewish Kabbalah book, something about the way I've forgotten the title, but it talks about how the uh, false pride or false humility is like a, uh, a straw house or, you know, like a, a barn filled with straw that's disguised as a regular house. People will think that it's a regular house until one day some holes wear into the wall and the straw starts poking through. And then people will see it and say, oh, it's a straw house disguised as a regular house. <laughs> and that that's the way it is with false humility. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think that the, the, the thing is, it's, it's like one extra step that sometimes people forget to take. And it's like not malevolent, it's almost innocent that they think, oh, humility, okay, act humble. And this isn't just magicians or people on the path. This is just people who go to church when, they, when they're when they growing up, they hear they're supposed to be humble. So they think, okay, I'm the most humble. I'm, I'm, I'm very humble. And one of my character traits is that I'm humble. I'll write on my re resume that I'm humble, but then they never actually introspect and find humility. And when they do, it'll be such a relief because the thing that they've been hanging on to has been holding them back and holding them down. And then if they can actually release it and oh, I don't care if anybody remembers me after I die. Oh, I don't care if anybody's thinking about me right now. Like it's, it, it's such a relief, you know, to, to the genuine humility versus the appearance of humility. Because the appearance yeah, of humility, you're constantly looking. Do you see how humble I am? Do you see? Yeah. Are you impressed? You're impressed, right? <laughs> well, one thing that teaches us humility is when we see the dark side of our personality. Mm. Mm, shadow we see work, how screwed up we see how screwed up we are yeah and it humbles us something thomas keating said that i've treasured is that humility is an attitude of honesty towards reality mm. Mm. you know and the reality is we are totally dependent on our divine source for everything <laughs> so uh what time is it it's evening for you right oh the sun that's the sun isn't it behind yeah. you yeah wow it's getting to be time for me to have dinner but it's about 8 30 here now wow and still sun beaming in through the window is that is yeah that behind it'll, you? it'll be light out until close to midnight wow and then it'll be light out again at 4 a.m <laughs> that's so interesting it is. That's fun. Well, I suppose we can 
probably wrap this up. Um, what do you think? Do you have any final sure, thoughts? That sounds, that sounds good to me. I think we ought to do it again before too long. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, let's let's do that. We'll we'll do it in a, after some time when, when maybe when you finish this book that you're working on or uh, yeah. We'll... Yeah, my publisher, the man who was my publisher passed away. Oh, January. So I don't know where how I'm going to find a publisher yet, but OK, I'm not I'm not pursuing that. But if right. You, Fear of any possibilities. I will, and I'll put that out there. We we both. I'll, I'll just tell you this much right now. I, I'm speaking to a. He's actually been on the Esoteric Nerd podcast, but I won't say his name. Um, a comic book illustrator, um, and uh, I'm hoping to turn my 37 page story into a you know a 150 page graphic novel. If he's oh, interested, great. yeah, it'd be. I think that'd be really nice. Um, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, so yeah, if anybody out there knows knows publishers, check out Kess's. Uh, you can find a link to all of his books. Um, you know, you can see where he's coming from and his bio. If you are a publisher or if you know a publisher, <laughs> uh, I know there's a, probably a few people here who work at Llewellyn or or know people who do. You know, how do you feel about Llewellyn? Are they okay? Penguin Publishing, uh, they're okay. Well, anyway, sure. Um, yeah. I mean, anybody that's willing to do this, yeah, contact it's a me. Serious, and I'll get through, you it's through a serious cast. book. Yeah, a serious book that's addressing contemporary issues and the mystery of our spiritual growth, and through the approach of oneness and universal spirituality. So I'm gonna, well, my plan anyway. I've got around sixty thousand words already, but mm. my plan is to use various traditions as examples of this path in sort of a uh, uh reminds me of joseph campbell a little bit the hero of a thousand faces mm. Mm. well i've been getting some really good inspiration and surprises and i've got a i've got a kind of a visionary poem at the beginning mm. of the book which in a way, it outlines what the book is covering in much more detail. Very nice. Maybe Very next time we get together, if you like, I could read that. Absolutely. Definitely, we'll do that. And uh, I'll probably be yeah. back at home in uh, Candleim when we do our next one. I, I yeah, had to the, do this outside so everybody could see the <laughs> beautiful nature here. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. The poem is called The Fire of Longing Summoning the Soul. Do you want to read it now? Well, I'd have to hunt it up. Oh, we'll do it next time. We'll do it next time. Yeah. Okay, well, I'll print it out. And uh, then I'll have it ready to read. Okay. And I'll send you Thomas and the Wolf. That's my story. And, uh, and we'll be in touch. Oh, please do. I'm going to have surgery for a hernia. Oh, boy. On the, the, on the 15th. Okay, everybody send light to Kess on the 15th. Everybody send rose yeah, crosses. Healing, right? <laughs> rose cross, Yeshua. Good. So that's gonna that's gonna knock me down a bit, the surgeon said. Ooh, yeah, yeah, for a little while. For a while. Well, you look healthy. Yeah, I am. I'm doing I still have major mobility issues, but mm. aside from that, I'm I'm doing really good. That's good. Good to see you.
It's it's going to make my mobility issues worse. Yeah. For a little while. Because I or? use, well, I use my not permanently, but I use my arms and my upper body mm. a lot to get around with a walker and so forth. Yeah. And that's going to put stress on the places where they do the uh, incisions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be more painful. Mm. That's what she told me. I'm getting the least invasive, so it's robotic. Mm. But they go in and you know in your stomach below the belly button and stuff. Mm. I've had some anxiety about it. Yeah. But I've got to remember life's an act of faith, right? Yeah. Sounds like some interesting Swati Sana uh, karma or something. Uh, is that Swati Sana? The below the be belly button? Yeah, I think it is. Mm. It's not the root chakra. It's no, that's the, the furnace that my dad used to. He, I think he furnace, was. Yes. He, I think he, he was coming from, uh, at the time, Andrew was his teacher. So it was like combining Chinese medicine with, uh, uh, with uh, chakras a little bit. Yeah. I think it's raining here. I was hoping it would while I was recording. Oh, your monsoons are coming, huh? Yeah, it's just starting. Oh, so good. This is, this is the best part of Goa. Well, you look like you've got a good tan, Edward. Oh yeah. Oh, I think it's it might be the lighting, because uh, it's maybe uh, it is. Yeah, every it's I'm backlit here. I I have this for, but it's not much for <laughs> to try to light me up. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I look tan. That's nice. <laughs> well, it's been really good visiting and talking about these favorite topics of ours. Absolutely. And there's more we can do and. If any of your uh, viewers have anything they'd like us to talk about or questions or comments, invite them to give them to you and then we can address them the next time we get together. Absolutely. The people who are seeing our faces right now are watching this through YouTube. So, uh, so for those of you watching this through YouTube, go ahead and comment below and uh, you will see that or I'll see that and I can contact Kess. I don't think you, you do much YouTubing. Uh, but I'll, uh, if they have a question are for you, I'll YouTube? forward it to you. Are we on YouTube now or are we? Going no, to... we, we will be <laughs> in a couple of days. Okay. Wow. Great. Oh, it's such perfect timing with the rain. It's really coming down now. Okay, brother. Thank you. All right. Well, I have wonderful meditations and much love and peace to you and everybody who's in the spirit and we all need to pray for our world so that it heals absolutely okay. amen well thanks a lot Edward. thank you very much we'll be in touch we'll be in touch bye for now bye bye <laughs>
harp uh, melody I chose for the intro and outro to the interview itself. I haven't done that yet, so it will be as much of a surprise to me as it was to you. Did I do Again, just a reminder, if you've listened to this whole episode, um, you know, you might be interested in uh, the content at the VH Friday BT YouTube page, as well as the travel series on the YouTube page. Basically, the BT stuff is who I used to be, and the travel series is the process by which I became who I am. So if you're interested in that, there might be a little bit of a disconnect between me being the host producer and so on of the Esoterian podcast, but also being kind of detached and apart from and in a, in a parallel dimension to it, uh, or at least what it, what it sort of was. Thank you all for tuning in. Cops on pect, Kongsong packs, light in extension.